1: feels like a long time since i've said that
0: i know what are you doing here bill we haven't seen you in a while welcome back thank you everyone we're pretty tight small little group today so this will be this will be fun a little bit of a riff not too newsy after the stuff that we've had to endure for the last couple weeks in the real world we're gonna we're gonna avoid the real world today and talk about the fantasies of journalism Mm. so so with us this week is Bill Sutton, who's back at the controls. Hey, Bill.
1: Hey, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group.
0: And Brendan J. O'Reilly is here with us as well. Hey, Brendan.
2: Hi, everyone. I'm Brendan. I am the deputy managing editor.
0: And my name is Annette Hinkle, and I'm the arts and living editor of the Express News Group. And also with us is our old friend, not that old, but
2: <laughs> friend has
0: been around a while, and that's Brian Boyhan, or Brian, yeah, Brian Boyhan, who is sitting in the... Sagamore Express Office Boyhan. I didn't want to say that because I'll I'll I don't want (laughs) or Boyhan. How do you say your name, Brian?
3: Boyhan. Brian Boyhan. It used to to just be Boyan, and you know until I was there, I was a teenager in college. Actually, actually until I got into business, and my brother uh, Tom Boyan uh, started pronouncing it Boyhan. Because huh. when he was doing, when he was conducting a business story, a uh, story of doing business, the person he was talking with always kind of bubbled the name a little bit. So he uh, articulated the H in boy hand and it became boy hand And I just sort of followed suit.
0: Yeah. I wonder how they said it in the old country.
3: That was interesting, huh? Never know. Uh,
0: so what are you, Brian? How do we describe you? As a as a introduction,
3: uh, I am the former editor and publisher of the Sag Harbor Express.
0: That's right. Also with us today is Drew Scott. Sorry, I'm late. Uh, I'm uh, I'm hey, held over on another Zoom. Hey Drew. <laughs> yeah, you thought you were going to start relaxing now, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So um, Drew Scott and Brian Boyhan were both inducted into the Long Island Journalism Hall of Fame last week by the Press Club of Long Island, of which Brendan happens to be the current president. We thought we would have Drew and Brian on today to talk a little bit about their background and their life in journalism and this recent honor and um, what they're up to going forward. So, Brendan, do you want to talk a little bit about the about the Hall of Fame and uh, the Press Club and the event that we had uh, last week?
2: So, a bit of background on the Press Club of Long Island. It is a chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists, uh, but it wasn't always that way. It actually started as an independent club in response to this event where a reporter was jailed for withholding a source and that happened in 1974 so we're coming on 50 years of this club's existence i think my math is right there isn't it yeah i think
0: that's 50 years that went by in a flash
2: (laughs) so and at one point brian was actually uh the vice president of the press club of long island's east end satellite uh so it, it was in the 80s when the press club of long island joined The Society of Professional Journalists, which is a national organization with chapters all over the country. And it had been the tradition uh, to honor an outstanding journalist every year. Eventually, they decided to turn that into what they call the Long Island Journalism Hall of Fame. So in 2014, there was an inaugural class, which included everybody who had been the journalist of the year before. And since then, they've added three, four, or five people a year. Um, In 2021 and in 2020, because we weren't able to do a Hall of Fame induction in person due to the pandemic, we decided to just do posthumous inductions. So that was uh, Willem Cullen Bryant from the New York Evening Post in 2021 and David Frothingham of the Long Island Herald which I believe that was actually in Sag Harbor, the first newspaper on Long Island. And then in 2022, when we were able to do this again, uh, the board voted to select Drew Scott of News 12, Joy Brown of Newsday, Chris Vaccaro, who is a PCLI member and he is inducted into the PCLI wing of the Hall of Fame for his contributions to the Press Club of Long Island and the Society of Professional Journalists. And last but not least, Brian Boyhan, publisher emeritus of the Sag Harbor Express.
0: Did you have to arm wrestle someone to get Brian in there since he's one of ours?
2: I (laughs) tried to stay out of the argument because I know Brian, and Brian was inducted based on his merits, not because of anything that I did.
0: (laughs) So Brian, you didn't pay Brendan under the table or anything for this.
2: I did not. You did I not. not. I was, so I, I can tell you that
3: I was shocked when I, I learned uh, about this.
0: You you have you have joined the club that includes Walt Whitman.
3: Yeah, and uh, no, it's a pretty. Uh, I it's a fairly heady company. You know, it's uh, it's Walt Whitman, it's William Cullen Bryant, Jimmy Breslin, uh, Bob Green, who um, I had I was lucky enough to have met. Uh, you know, back probably 20 years ago. Uh, And um, David Frothingham, which is one of my favorites, of course, because he was the founder of the first newspaper on Long Island, the uh, Long Island Herald. Somewhere in Sag Harbor, it was published, right? Somewhere in Sag Harbor. And interestingly about uh, David Frothingham was he was, um, I believe, tried on the Alien Sedition Act because he and the government uh, did not see eye to eye. And he actually was in jail. I've heard uh, a couple of different stories. Either he died in jail or he was released and never heard from again. Um, Wow. So he's kind of a mysterious character.
0: Kind of mysterious, yeah.
3: And then Carl Carl Grossman. Yes. uh, 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 And uh, a longtime journalist. I've been reading Carl's stories and coverage ever since I was a teenager, I used to uh, read, my local newspaper when I grew up was the Suffolk County News, which was published in Stable. We lived in Oakdale and that was our, our local paper. And Carl, um, one of the few syndicated journalists, I think on Long Island over the years. And um, uh, he wrote quite a bit about environmental stuff, which of course, you know, we know, and uh, his coverage of the, um, shoreham nuclear power plant uh, was probably one of the big reasons that that uh, uh, horrible idea never came to fruition yeah so i mean i'm in great company and i am in awe of my fellow <laughs> members so uh yeah and you're
0: also in a, a minority in that you were a kid that grew up reading newspapers i don't think kids do that anymore do they i'd like to think no. they do but i don't think mine does
3: no, unfortunately, I have a. So here I am, a a, a lifelong journalist. A lifelong journalist, a long journalism career. Owned a newspaper. Uh, now in the Hall of Fame, and my daughter does not read newspapers.
0: No, that's too bad. Well, but I think I think what could be kind of fun is to talk about how you got into this business because. Um, you sort of backed into it in an interesting way that, you know, you weren't one of those like, oh, go to journalism school, get a you know internship at a daily or whatever and work your way up to being a publisher of a paper at the end of Long Island. Um, so I, I think it's I think people are surprised when they hear your story of how you came to this business and what you were doing prior to coming to this business.
3: Well, you know, it's funny, I um, uh, I read the story about Drew Scott, who followed a very traditional way, went to journalism school, uh, studied writing, reporting, and, you know, started knocking on doors, and kind of right out of the box, became a working journalist. I um, w- it was quite different, I was everything from a dishwasher, to a telephone salesman, to a bartender, to a high school English teacher, and then finally landed in my I was probably 34 years old, I think, by the time I landed a job here. I think there's actually a lot to be said about living, having those kinds of experiences and how they shape your view on life. You come to things in a much more different way, in a much different way, I think, if you've had those different life experiences. Not that going to journalism school is isolating at all, but I think that there is a value to to doing a variety of different things.
0: It's like the lived experience. Like, I always thought it was weird that, you know, kids come out of um, college with teaching degrees and are immediately teaching history, you know, like, I feel like there's a, and then you also have those teachers that end up becoming teachers much later in life. And just, you know, the lived experience is probably a huge benefit.
3: Well, it is. And uh, even before I became a teacher, I had been doing a bunch of other things. I wound up in a job that I couldn't stand. I said, if this is going to be my life, I'm going to put a bullet in my head. Uh, and, uh, it was several years after I had finished my undergraduate work. And I said, I've got to do something else other than what I'm doing. And, um, I went back, I uh, went to Stony Brook university. And then, uh, mm. through that got, um, uh, cert- uh, teaching certification. And I taught for three years, uh, high school English in Brentwood. And, um, it's a, um, it's a revelation, you know, it's, uh, you're, you're, you're kind of forced to see the world through other people's eyes and, uh, and, and having those different experiences, I think is just yeah. great.
0: So I thought it would be, uh, you know, when you, when you started at the Express, Pat Coles um, had just bought it, was this 1988, I think, right? So it was a-
3: yeah, 1988. I was um, uh, tending bar across the street here at at Ryerson's. Tending bar is a great skill. I advise um, uh, young people to learn it. It's a great way to fill in the gaps in between jobs. It used to be a lot better when it was a lot more cash going around. And here in Sag Harbor, it it, it kind of earns you a certain street cred. You know, when I became the editor, I was. Known a little bit about around the town, and you develop certain skills. I think as a bartender, people skills, interpreting, reading them. I think is a a great skill for a journalist to have to be able to read people. So it's not much of a leap to go from bartender to editor, publisher. It is. It well, it certainly wasn't for me. (laughs) I uh, I wound up uh, working one afternoon. It It was a Sunday, and these two guys come into the bar who I knew from different parts of my life from years before. One was Warren McDowell, who was a friend of mine who was the publisher of the Fire Island Tide. Uh, and Warren and I had shared a house on the mainland and then we shared a house over on Fire Island in Davis Park for uh, a, a while. And uh, I remember the, them putting the Fire Island Tide together on our like kitchen dining room table. And then the other guy was uh, Pat Coles and he I knew um, from when I spent a lot of time up in Port Jefferson when I was working as an actor and uh, I used to run this cabaret downstairs in the theater and Pat was a frequent customer who would come in and I knew a little bit about him. I knew his family had a a big history in uh, in newspapering, uh, but I hadn't really paid that much attention. So all of a sudden these two guys show up in the bar. And uh, we got talking about this newspaper called the Sag Harbor Express, which I had heard about, but I don't think I had ever picked it up. And I've been living here for two years. And just the week before, there were a, a, a number of people who had come into the and, into the had lunch, and we got chatting. And they said, Oh, well, you know, the paper's being bought. I said, Oh, really? By the, uh, the woman who owns the East Hampton Star. I said, Oh, well, that's interesting. And then Pat and Warren came in. And we sit and shoot the breeze and have a couple of, and they have a couple of drinks, they go. Next weekend, they come back, sit around the bar, talk about old times, they have a couple of drinks, go home. Next Sunday, they do the same thing, come into the bar, have a couple of drinks, blah, 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 go home. And then Warren comes in the final weekend, the Sunday, and he goes, well, you got it figured out yet. I said, what are you talking about? He said, what Coles and I are doing here. I said, no. He said, well, we're buying the Sag Harbor Express. Well, come to learn that it wasn't Warren who was buying it. It was Pat Coles. Uh, and uh, Warren was just kind of along for the ride. But Pat put it in the, the next week's paper. I went and bought the Sag Harbor Express. Now that I know a couple of people who are actually buying it. And on the cover is a little story. We're looking for an editor. And I thought, well, hmm, I don't want to be a bartender the rest of my life. Uh, I think I can do this. Uh, I was an English teacher. I knew how to write and uh, so I submitted uh, a resume and uh, went and met with Pat. And against all wisdom, he actually hired me to uh, be the editor. And then, I it was a lot of it was kind of learning on the job. I, you know, I had been around newspapers a little bit with the, you know, the Fire Island Tide. And I had done some writing, but I learned a lot doing it on the job. And thanks to Pat Coles, I um, I learned uh, how to be an editor, uh, and a publisher and run it as a business.
0: So Drew, do you want to talk a little bit about your life as a journalist? I know that you've done an incredible amount of things. And I think it's fascinating that your first job in journalism was like in Bermuda.
4: Uh, yeah, I went there on a honeymoon and I was, uh, Um, hoping for um, just an enjoyable two weeks. And uh, so we took, um, my wife and I took a tour of the TV studio and uh, uh, I said to the uh, program director, uh, you got any openings? And he says, as a matter of fact, yes, uh, somebody just quit Um, and went to ABC in London. I said, well, I've got a tape and a resume uh, handy uh always you know broadcast people know to carry tapes and resumes it's probably the same with newspaper people as well but uh uh always be ready on the spot so I was ready and they said well that that won't be necessary you could do a live audition and uh as so I took a big gulp and uh, said oh boy what am I in for um so uh the, the news director came down handed me a a wad of wire copy from the Reuters newswire, which I had never seen before, and it was uh, and it was Reuters out of London, um, uh, an idiom that's completely foreign to me. AP all these years, so uh, uh, I had to translate uh, what boots and lorries were. You know, I, I quickly. <laughs> I quickly learned uh, what a boot was and what a lorry was, and uh, went from there. But uh, he offered me the job on the spot after I did the five-minute newscast. So we were off and running. So,
0: had you and your wife really thought about living in Bermuda? Was that like on the? I didn't realize that was probably on your on your radar when you went there for a two-week no, vacation. It, it right? was
4: not on my radar, <laughs> but I did have my bags yeah. packed. And we were uh, we were. <laughs> thinking of uh, moving back uh, to California where my parents lived, or we could stay in New York where her parents lived and uh, uh, we're starting a new life. And uh, um, so all of a sudden this opportunity opened up and it seemed like uh, Providence. So what the heck, we we stayed uh, almost three years. It was fun. It was a lot of fun. I bet it was. it was a great learning yeah. experience too.
0: You probably got really good at driving a moped too, I'm thinking, right? Because that's what they get around on out there.
4: Driving on the left.
0: And on the left.
4: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, my uh, my wife uh, got a Volkswagen and uh, we picked it up from the showroom. And the first thing I did was drive it on the right and
0: get over on the left.
4: <laughs> I just had an
1: accident, the very first day.
0: <laughs> well, there's news. <laughs>
1: you could have been on your own newscast
0: (laughs) exactly so uh, so after a few years like you you just you moved um moved on to Long Island then right so I wondered if you um want to talk a little bit about your career on Long Island and and why Long Island did you have connection out here already um when you when you came for um to start to be the founding director of WLNY
4: uh we um uh, after almost three years in Bermuda it Uh, not, not being a a, a native, uh, being an expatriate there uh, is very expensive to live. So, and and we had uh, our first child there. So it was getting very expensive to continue living there. So we had to move back to New York. And uh, I, I, I I was not ready to break into New York stations um, uh, because I didn't have that much experience. So uh, the word was, you know, the, the best radio station, uh, to, to break into news was WGBB, uh, which was, um, uh, which had their studio in Merrick and they're uh, based out of Freeport. So I went there and, uh, again, uh, I walked in the door and said, you know, we just happened to have an opening. It was, uh, just uh, a lucky thing that you, you came in and approached us now. So they hired me uh, very quickly and it was great. Um, uh, so and I learned a lot there, too. Uh, th- that was uh, the uh, good old days of uh, local radio news on Long Island. We had two people on duty uh, almost the entire day and night. And uh, uh, we were uh, if we weren't on the air uh, twice, at, twice in the hour uh, broadcasting a five minute newscast, we were gathering tape on the telephone and making uh, beat calls. So it was, uh, it was a, a great lesson. And I think the very first year out was uh, the Roe versus Wade decision, um, which uh, was a huge story and uh, was an, uh, earth-shaking uh, to Long Island. Um, and um, uh, it, that was one thing that stands out in my mind. But yeah, GBB had a great reputation um, as uh, a pace setter in, in radio news. And, and they had what they had called uh, at the time uh, Long Island Network. Uh, so they um, partnered uh, with, in the newscasts with WGSM in Huntington. Um, so it was 1240 and uh, 7, uh, 4, 740 on the dial uh, in, uh, in Huntington. So it was, a, it was a great way to cover the, almost the entire island uh, with, with news and uh, public affairs.
0: And then, uh, and then you found your way down to, uh, to DC for a while where you were covering s- slightly larger, uh, news events. Right.
4: Right. Um, yeah, the, uh, I, I did, um, uh, radio for a, a couple of years and, uh, then was offered a job at WORFM in the city. And that was where I made my break into New York city and, uh, I was invited to join a, an AFRA union meeting one afternoon after my shift. And um, I just happened to uh, sit down with the uh, WORTV news director who said uh, that he was looking for reporters uh, to launch this new News at Noon program with Tom Dunn. Uh, was, uh, Tom was a, a very well-known a news broadcaster from CBS, and then um, ran into some problems and uh, was hired by Channel 9. And I said, well, uh, I'm working at FM. I would love to be a reporter on, on, on television. So I said, well, come by and see me. And that's how I got hired at WRTV. Uh Was there three years and then uh, jumped over to WPIX. And that was Tribune Broadcasting. They were setting up a network in Washington called Independent Network News, and they had a bureau there. And that's how I wound up four years working for Channel 11 down in DC. And that was a tremendous learning experience as well because uh, we had beats, but we also uh, had to substitute sometimes on Capitol Hill or at the White House uh, or in the agencies. So it it was great, great
1: learning experience there. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel, be well advised. Suffolklaw.com.
0: 27 Speaks brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books, independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton. Carrying a wide selection of new books, stationery, toys, games, first editions, and rare books. Their entire inventory is browsable on the website. Southamptonsagharborbooks.com Now hiring booksellers at both locations. You know, as you're talking about all the moves that you made, and I know you and Brian can all, probably both talk to this. What's the challenge of, of being in this business and balancing your family life?
4: It, it's a tough one uh, and it's, it's challenging um, because, uh, you know, when you're starting out in the business, you've got to work holidays, you got to work nights, you got to work weekends and uh, it can be tough fun on families. Um, so, you know, my family got used to uh, me having to work on on uh, a lot of holidays, a lot of weekends, a lot of nights, or even early mornings for a, a long time. At uh, News Twelve, um, I, I worked early mornings and uh, got up at uh, two thirty in the morning and uh, went out. <laughs> so, uh,
0: so, did they have know. to? Did they have to move with you down to DC and back up to New York? And or did yes. you commute all those years?
4: no i <laughs> uh no they uh they they moved with me and uh we lived in uh, virginia and uh i just uh, rode in uh i commuted in in the morning and uh commuted home at night um and we lived in uh, fredericksburg area um and i uh, my uh commuting mate on the bus was uh, james farmer um, a, a famous civil rights attorney uh, who worked in the government for many years and was the founder of CORE, Congress of Racial Equality. That uh, was fascinating, learning uh, all of the experiences he had in his lifetime. We, we chatted. It was uh, about almost an hour's trip into the D- into D.C. And, uh, we got to be good friends.
2: Drew, could you speak about when you covered the event that ended up being the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan and, and how close you were, what you saw? Yeah,
4: we were, uh, it was a, just a um, routine stakeout, as we call it. Uh, the, there were a number of, uh, of us there uh, just to get a quick photo opportunity of uh, Reagan's uh, speaking to a, a union group. Then he would come out, he'd wave to the, to the crowd, he'd jump in his limousine and take off. So we thought it was very routine. Uh, not even a, a packaged story, just a just a quick shot. So I was there with the camera crew uh, to record the event and uh, the Secret Service came around, checked everybody's ideas uh, to make sure who we were. But the one guy that they didn't check was the scruffy uh, uh, John Hinckley, who was there in dirty clothes and, uh, and looked like he was living on the street for a number of days. Uh, why they didn't check him and and uh, wh- why they weren't tipped off to him. But a- afterwards, we realized that this was a, a a big failure in security. But uh, yeah, he was coming out waving to the crowd and wham, uh, all the sudden the shots uh, rang out and, and just uh, absolute bedlam broke out. It was uh, just a crazy experience. And um, <laughs> we had no idea this was going to happen. And it was a, you know once in a lifetime event to see an attempted assassination against the president of the united states it's sad in a way because a number of people were badly injured in, in that uh, gunplay
1: yeah, but but you as a as a as a journalist i'm sure it was it was shocking and all that but you're you're trained to just be ready to go and you just and you you jump right
4: <laughs> right uh, we uh uh, you know, after um, um, the Secret Service and a couple of cameramen and, and, and reporters jumped on this guy, uh, the, uh, after after things were controlled for a, a couple of seconds, I, I grabbed a quarter in my pocket, ran across the street to a diner, and threw the mm-hmm. the money in the payphone and called my bureau and let them know what was going on. Because um, we didn't have uh, radios uh, with INN, and we didn't have certainly didn't have cell phones at, in 1981, so um, I let them know, and then my, my bureau chief said, uh, "Get to the hospital and see what's going on there." So I took a cab, went to the hospital, and uh, we started doing reports in there. And then they moved me over to the White House, where Al Haig was. Later on in the evening, said, uh, "I'm in control here," and. He was obviously not in very much control, um, and we really didn't realize until um, uh, quite a few days later how uh, tenuous that situation was, how close to death uh, President Reagan was, and 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 um, how this caught everybody with uh, w- with uh, surprise, and uh, even the vice president was traveling and uh, wasn't wasn't locked into place, so it was a mess.
0: <laughs> you know it's also kind of surprising to me is like here we are all of these years later and you know the issue of guns is back in the news um roe v wade is on the chopping block and john hinckley jr has been released from prison so um, he's, he's
4: on a rock and roll tour
0: yeah that's, <laughs> oh man if he plays at Stephen hot talk house i don't know if i'll go
4: oh no <laughs> i just no, hope right. he's taking his meds that's all <laughs>
0: that's so true um but i wondered if brian if, if you and drew wanted to talk a little bit about how journalism has changed in the years you talk about throwing a quarter and a payphone. you know that certainly has changed um but also that's changed you know is the is the number of different ways people can get their news and for everything good and everything bad that means you know people can sort of get isolated in their their bubbles and and kind of expose themselves to the things that they want to be exposed to. And, you know, when we were growing up, it was there were three networks and they all pretty much covered the same stories, right?
3: Yeah, technology has changed to such a degree that we're, um, uh, we're being fed or we have access to so many different news sources. And uh, the problem is so many of them are unreliable. They're, uh, you know, the bias and uh, uh, outright lies. I think probably one of the worst things that's happened, and Drew, maybe you can speak to this, one of the worst things that's happened uh, to broadcast news is the advent of cable television and, uh, and networks that are, uh, not networks, but channels that are so patently biased that it's, um, uh, it's like politics. You wind up taking sides and you listen to the stuff that goes on that your team is talking about. And, uh, you know, Walter Cronkite, of course, gets thrown up as the grandfather of objective journalism for broadcast news. And um, between the advent of cable television and the advent of uh, and, uh, the internet, um, mm-hmm. I think that our perceptions of, of things uh, uh, are so skewed uh, and the, the lack of truth and the lack of veracity is, um, is fueling this uh, great division that we're seeing in the country right now. You know, watching the, uh, the congressional hearing last night and, uh, and watching the, the footage uh, and seeing the anger that's there, all fomented by lies and bias. I think that's one of the worst things that has happened in the past 25 years
4: i i agree i, I think uh, a, a lot of younger people today don't realize the difference between a newscaster and a news commentator and and that's really what we have nowadays uh, on the uh, many of the networks are news commentators who uh, are um, uh, sawing a log from a certain standpoint and uh they're, uh, they're ultra-conservative or uh, uh, ultra-liberal. Um, the, the, the days of Walter Cronkite, uh, who rarely ever showed emotion, maybe when the president uh, was murdered in 1963 or when the men landed on the moon in 1969, was about the only time he ever showed any, any kind of emotion or made some kind of comment that was, uh, wasn't uh, necessarily uh, uh, scripted. Um, it, it just, uh, it's very confusing for people today and, and it's, uh, uh, sadly, uh, y- young audiences now, uh, are shying away from television news. They're shying away from newspapers and getting their news from Facebook or from TikTok or from Snapchat, uh, or Twitter, uh, which is absolutely crazy.
2: Hi, this is Michael Wright. I'm
1: a reporter for the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and 27east.com. I cover East Hampton Town and follow important stories about the environment, including the coming South Fork Wind Farm, its impact on the fishing industry, and other water quality issues. We follow East Hampton Town and village government, and I'm asking the tough questions and providing you with important answers. My colleagues and I in the editorial department work hard as watchdogs for this community, but we can't do it without our subscribers. If you find the work we're doing valuable to you, please subscribe by visiting 27east.com forward slash subscribe.
3: Thank you very much.
0: Do we worry about also the way that journalists are portrayed? Like they've become an enemy of the people. I mean, we saw on January 6th how journalists who were there to cover the event turned into victims in many ways. And Is that something that um, you have seen, either of you, um, any sort of vitriol sent your way that, that was threatening? And, um, and is that something that we need to be concerned about is the way journalists are perceived and treated in this country?
4: Uh, y- yes, I, I think uh, when I first started out uh, in television news, um, people were very willing to talk and share their experiences with you. And they felt that y- you were on their side, the people's side uh, to tell their story. Uh, now, um, uh, there is, uh, uh, you know, one of my colleagues uh, in radio uh, was assaulted by a crowd uh, in uh, 2020 um, during a demonstration on the streets in New York City um, uh, simply because he was carrying a microphone and, and uh, happened to have a mic flag on there. And uh, they turned on him because, uh, uh, in their opinion, uh, you know, journalists uh, were, were uh, biased against their cause. So um it's it's a sad situation today uh, we're 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 in for the most part we're not viewed as uh, as uh, telling a story uh on behalf of the people but uh um uh grinding out uh, stories that uh, are special to a certain group of people a group of uh, political uh, minds
3: yeah i think that trickles down certainly to community journalism at our level, uh, that there is a, a heightened skepticism about journalists' motives. You know, Were you there to tell our story or are you gonna be there to twist what I'm gonna tell you so that it fits some um, narrative that the news organization wants? You know, uh, I think that there was, so I've been at this for a little bit over 30 years, Drew's been in it a, a little bit longer than I am, But there has always been a little bit of skepticism about the journalists. Uh, And I think what has happened in the past decade or maybe a little bit less uh, is this uh, uh, distrusting of what a journalist's motive actually is. And I think to the point of and uh, uh, for uh, Brendan and the, uh, members of SPJ, uh, the Society of Professional Journalists, I think they have a, uh, perhaps a greater challenge than they may have had 20, 30 years ago about establishing, uh, ethical groundwork for journalists. Uh, and I think it starts with organizations like SPJ, uh, and certainly in newsrooms, um, to, um, Try not to be as uh, as biased uh, or uh, emotionally involved as um, uh, you may have a tendency to be.
0: Yeah, I feel like where we are on the East End of Long Island, we might be a little bit more protected from you know some of the things that go on in against journalists in larger regions as well. Maybe I'm not sure. Yeah, good question.
2: I mean, there's still just like a lot of vitriol and it's funny how comfortable people are saying nasty things to your face when you're a journalist just like casually um i signed on to a zoom meeting uh for a local regulatory board and i wasn't expecting to talk or be talked to but they saw me in the audience and they're like oh brendan he's a reporter what what's what's he doing here so i'm like oh yeah i was here about this application did you know are you going to vote on that tonight and one of the people on the board just says to me, is like, oh, are you one of those reporters that makes things up like at the New York Times? And I'm just like, that's kind of a rude thing to say to somebody you just met. Would you, you know, do you say that to the mailman? Like, are you one of those mailmen who trample the bushes and my roses? Like, like, who introduces themselves to somebody like that? But when you're a journalist, I think, especially online, but shockingly in person too, people don't see you as a human. They see you as like a character and the way that you can interact with a character is different than how you would interact with a human being, which is why they feel comfortable just tweeting abuse at people on the internet. And I say tweeting, but it's all social media.
0: Well, you know, we got rid of our comments section um, uh, at 27 East um, uh, because just, you know, it just seemed like it always devolved into this really horrible, you know, name calling and really heinous kind of speech. Um, so now they just do that on Facebook, right? Right.
1: but <laughs> I mean, it's interesting that um, you talk about those comments. and um, not not even not 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 the officials that that Brennan was talking about, but we we noticed because of those comments because of the social media, whether it was on the site or on facebook or or whatever, that that the reporters were having a really tough time just getting people to comment for stories, um, you know, whether it was officials or whether it was man on the street stuff or people in a community that, that had an issue that we would say, you know, they would call up a reporter from from Southampton Press, 27 East or whatever, we're just looking for information and they just wouldn't talk to the reporter because they knew that, that they were gonna get attacked on, on social media and, and I imagine um, you know, Brian and, and Drew, that it was, you know, you, you both kind of mentioned that um, the, 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 the respect that people had for, for the press was was different before, before those changes. And I just think that, that that's fascinating that people just don't want to be quoted in an article anymore because they don't want to face those repercussions.
3: Mm-hmm. I don't want to point the blame at one individual. Uh, but I think that uh, our former president, had an awful lot to do with changing the tenor of discourse in America uh, and it actually became okay to speak to people the way that um, people are now, the way that the, the experience that Brendan had, uh, the uh, the comments. Um, I, I think people, the population looks to their leaders to set a standard and if this person up here is speaking to people that way is uh, uh not offering respect to the person that they're talking to um, and in the guise of it being a tough stance when you have somebody who treats other people uh, as a bully i think that trickles down to the rest of the population and I think that the experience that Brendan has, or the experience in the in the comments, suddenly it's okay to speak to somebody like that in that way.
1: And, and, uh, and, and along I, those same that, lines, it's it's okay to look at at any any broadcast, any newspaper article, any any post, and just say fake news, fake news, fake correct. news without without any research, without any 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 trust in, in the organization or looking at different you know, which organization is producing that, if it, if it, if it meets your purpose and I'm not just talking about, you know, the former president, but he certainly capitalized on, on that, 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 you know, the the, the respect and the trust that we had from readers prior to that um, disappeared overnight because anybody could just say it's fake news.
3: Correct.
0: I wonder too, do you think it's, is it harder for, um, for, for people that are, that are on um, broadcast um, stations, like, you know, Drew, like they see your face, they know your face with us being, you know, print journalists, we're, you know, nobody really knows what we, what we look like as much. So I, I, and also just the news crews, you know, for TV news are very obvious when they're on the street doing things and interviewing people. Is it harder? Do you think for, for broadcasters um, than it is for print journalists?
4: Oh, yes, it, it, it's much harder. Uh, uh, I've done both radio and television news, and uh, I, I, people are a, a little more willing to talk to a radio reporter because you're not carrying a camera. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, you, and sometimes if, if it's uh, people on the street uh, interviews, uh, you don't necessarily have to use their name or their, their uh, place of residence uh, in a comment. But uh, if you're carrying a camera and you need their name and and the lo- location of where they live, uh, people are very reluctant to to, uh, to to take a standpoint and and speak up. And it's getting much harder these days uh, than than in previous years. I've found that is absolutely true.
0: Well, wow. yeah, not an easy time to be doing this. So you you supposedly were retired, but now you're not retired. Is that right?
4: <laughs> uh- uh, i I was um, uh, renting my house during the summer and right i am in West Hampton and I was going up to uh, stay uh with my daughter in in Burlington Vermont and uh i i uh, made friends with one of the reporters there in, in Burlington I was particularly touched by a story that she had done on uh uh, opioid addiction in in that particular uh, county Chittenden county uh, in Burlington and uh, it reminded me of some of the work that we've been doing here in in uh, in Southampton with the uh, task force so uh, i i commented then uh, I was invited in to to meet some of the news people and uh, after uh, a few meetings and conversations uh, they, uh, said, why don't you come up here and work for us? Uh, so I, I, um, I was offered a weekend, uh, anchor position and, uh, I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm up there, uh, during the summer, uh, might as well try it out. So right now I'm commuting, but as soon as we, uh, we move out for the summer, uh, I'll be up there, uh, on, uh, uh, Saturday and Sunday, uh, on the, I'm on the air, uh, tomorrow and Sunday. Uh, and it's kind of nice to be back uh, anchoring again. It's uh, it's not full time and uh, it's uh, it's a half hour newscast. So it's a, it's not as stressful as a full hour of news or, or two hours of news like I used to do, but I, I really enjoy it. It uh, keeps you hopping.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Drew, you mentioned the task force. Could you speak a little more about the task force and your work on it and um, I know you the task force had like an initial job that they got done, right? Yeah. And, but their, their work is still going on. Yes. I don't think you're co-chairing it anymore, but you're still involved. Right.
4: I'm a member of the committee. Uh, it was called a task force. We, we had um, a year to make a final report. We, we presented that final report, uh, making uh, almost a um, hundred recommendations to the town and to the, uh, to local government. And this is related uh, and then just the, to
0: clarify this is related to the opioids in um in the town
4: correct yeah opioid addiction um fentanyl uh, heroin uh, any kind of substance abuse really uh was addressed by our task force and we had members all members of the community uh, ambulance uh, fire department uh, police department um uh, people from uh, oasis uh, the state uh, Uh, Addiction Council, the local hospital, Southampton Hospital, um, a number of uh, medical doctors and nurses, uh, treatment um, uh, people, as well as uh, former substance abusers who uh, were in long years of remission and and, uh, were uh, uh, fully uh, rehabilitated. And uh, it was, uh, it's, it's been a great experience. Uh, we uh, now call it uh, the um, Substance Abuse and Mental Health uh, Committee. Uh, so it's a wider scope that we have to address in Southampton. And uh, we're happy to open up a, a Thrive Center in, in West Hampton, uh, thanks to a grant from OASIS. And also from HUGS, the organization that uh, works with substance abuse. Um, And uh, Thrive Center is kind of like a clubhouse for uh, people who are um, uh, looking to uh, turn their lives around and need help and support. Uh, So uh, if it's Super Bowl, it's a World Series or a weekend, uh, uh, the Rangers uh, versus the Tampa Lightning uh, hockey game, uh, they come and they uh, uh, sit down, they watch TV, they, they associate with other uh, former substance abusers and, and uh, people who were uh, treatment um, uh, facilitators and uh, counselors. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the beverages that are served are non-alcoholic. And uh, uh, it's, uh, it's a place to um, let their hair down and enjoy themselves um, and be free of any, any kind of substance. We're hoping to open more, by the way, uh, in East Hampton maybe in, and Riverhead as well. So we're working on that.
0: So I know you come to this issue from a very personal space. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I,
4: um, I, I was, uh, I had twin granddaughters, um, Hallie and Ellison. They were 22 years old, um, uh, beautiful girls, um, they were in college. They were in the first, uh, second year of college. Uh, they are both in the city. Um, and then Hallie, uh, who was uh, the younger of the, of the twins, she was about 10 minutes uh, later uh, than, than Ellison was born. So um, she, uh, uh, she uh, got involved with a, a friend who uh, was a heroin addict and he introduced her to his misery and uh, got her involved in that, uh, that. She thought she was in love. And um, uh, they were staying in East Hampton uh, one weekend and uh, they uh, were camping there. And I, they had apparently taken uh, heroin uh, and unbeknownst to them, it was uh, it had fentanyl in it and uh and she uh, had a fatal overdose um the uh the boyfriend uh died the next day um and uh it was just just a terrible tragic uh situation and of course our whole family was, was devastated by by what happened um and, and this was a good kid. The Kid was in college. She was, uh, she was um, hoping to achieve a a life of art and creativity. And, um, and all of a sudden this thing happens. Uh, So I, I, and I know there are hundreds and hundreds of other uh, kids on Long Island in the same situation. So uh, Jay Schneiderman and I got together and uh, we, we uh, really decided we got to do something about this. So he, he called me up and he said, "Why don't we set up a task force and uh, you be co-chair and and we'll um, we'll um, look at the reasons for this and what we can what we can do to turn it around." Uh, in that particular year, I think there had been something like thirty overdose deaths in the town of Southampton alone that were recorded. Probably more, but. A lot of times uh, uh, overdose deaths are reported as other things. You know, it could be uh, um, uh, misunderstood as a suicide or maybe misunderstood as a heart attack or something like that. Um, And then after we got busy with uh, our work and with public awareness, um, the next year there were fewer overdoses and then the next year even fewer almost uh three i think was uh, the total number of fatal overdoses in the second year of our task force and then all of a sudden the pandemic hit and now we were back to square one so um uh, we've got our work cut out for us again and uh it's a it's a huge crisis and then we we have the problem of um uh, possibility of uh, uh, legalization of marijuana now in the state of New York, and, and uh, that's only—it seems to have aggravated the problem with uh, a lot of uh, substance abusers. So uh, we've got a lot to deal with.
0: Yeah, and Connecticut—I mean, in Vermont, where you're doing your newscast, uh, they deal with the with the same thing up there. It's almost—it uh, seems almost worse up in Vermont, right? It
4: is. It, it, it is a, a huge epidemic there, and. Uh, uh, there are circumstances why it's that way. It's more rural, and uh, they're, they're, uh, uh, they need distractions, and one of the distractions are, are, are drugs, which is sad, and uh, that's, that's what happens, uh, especially during a pandemic. You're, you're, uh, you're locked into place. You can't go anywhere. You, you're wearing a mask. You, you have to stay uh, close to home. Uh, so people were turning back to drugs or to uh, alcohol or other things, which, uh, made the problem worse.
0: Well, it sounds like you're doing a lot of good work though, um, between being on air and and the task force in Southampton.
4: Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, we, we, uh, we have a candlelight vigil, uh, each year where people come out and remember their, uh, their loved ones. And, uh, we, we partnered with, uh, uh, Huntington, Islip, and, um, uh, we're hoping, uh, to, uh, get a, a task force going in the town of Brookhaven as well. So, um, yeah, stay tuned. There's more to come. <laughs>
0: Your work on Long Island continues, even though you can also see you in Vermont now.
2: Great. Right. Right. <laughs> True. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us and for sharing with us um, about your your personal details and the important work you've done for the task force and and about your career. I think for me as a journalist, I love to hear about um, these really storied careers and and the positivity that you've brought to to journalism on Long Island and and further afield um, internationally, really. Uh, with your time spent in Bermuda and as the press club of Long Island we were really honored to be able to induct you into the Long Island Journalism Hall of Fame, and Brian too. Um, when we th- think about who made great positive differences for journalism here. Uh, you know it's, as much as we love our TV folks, um, it really is the people running the community newspapers too. Um, And to the far reaches of the island to, you know, we're an East End podcast and for the East Enders, um, the Sag Harbor Express is very important to us, um, just as Newsday and News 12 are important to the people up island. So, uh, Brian, we were equally as thrilled to be able to induct you into the Hall of Fame. Thank you. Thank you very much.
4: Great being with you. Being with all of you. Thank you.
1: 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. Suffolklaw.com.
0: Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and sagharborexpress.com Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.